Hello, and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? This is a podcast aimed at folks. If you've seen The Matrix, you know Neo. Well, he had this deep sense of dislocation. Yeah, that's this podcast. It's for badass seekers who want to talk about heavy things lightly. So we're going to use theology, history, philosophy, and many, many years of deeply immersive experiences in foreign cultures to figure out our own culture and how we've gotten to where we are now. Our pod will go beyond the rhetorical rabbit, okay? The quickly reproduced media memes and marketing widgets that big media uses to make money. Instead, we're going to examine contemporary cultural phenomena, looking for the small and the big truths embedded therein. It's in there. So join me, John Hears. And our team of first things field workers, as we wonder sort of aloud out here in the in the interweb, why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode one. This is about race. Today we take a bumpy flight through history. By the time we land, I hope I will have delivered a message about race and racism. I hope the message sounds something like what we see in the streets is a righteous protest about race, except it's not. It's something way deeper, something utterly transracial, supra-racial, and potentially, this is good and bad, potentially far more transformational than some politically inspired agenda about rights. But first, we're getting there. We got to talk about how we got the title for this pod. I kind of hinted at it, but there's more to it. So what I want to do is tell a story. I'm going to put you in it, okay? So welcome to our podcast. And I want you to now welcome yourself into this story that starts with you at a table filled with men. There's some women too, but it's mostly men. It's a long table. It's in the Georgian Republic. So the best way to think of this place is like a fairy tale land with castles and, and mountains that have like monasteries or ancient churches that sort of sit at the top, like little crowns. Think of Rapunzel if you want. Lord of the Rings, that works. You can orcs or not. But you're at that table, right? And suddenly the table starts to feel formal, right? It's a dinner, but it's suddenly formal. There's some Toastmaster guy named Atomada, and he starts commanding attention. And you think how it must be someone's birthday, because that's your context. Oh, it's a birthday. But then it's serious. At least it seems serious, but still people are sort of enjoying themselves. And they're philosophical and heavy and still everyone's laughing and well it feels natural except for then a dude is crying like a like a big dude starts crying but he, is he drunk because he kind of in he would be drunk in america but this dude i don't think he's drunk 
Then you realize this isn't about birthdays, and uh, then they're toasting about the nature of men, and then a toast to the nature of women, and then, oh, here's a toast on the importance of death, and now there's one on children, and there's all these themes, and, and here's one. Oh, I get this one. This one's on artists and artistry, and then there's one to comedy, and all the time you're thinking, I, I should say something, because... It's fun, and I don't know what to say exactly, but I'd like a Sagrazello, which is the name for, hey, would you like the toast? And you decide to do it. It, It's it's public speaking, right? And your toast is a joke. No, but it's like a joke, as in a joke. You tell a joke uh, about frogs, and the punchline is ribbits. And no one gets your joke. And silence. And so your face is turning red, like the red pill in the Matrix. And it's embarrassing as hell. And then one of the men at the table, he asks you with his big mitt hands and his like farm strength looking forearm, like crazy farm forearms. He looks at you. He's not smiling. And he says, "Eh, why are we talking about rivets? But of course, you weren't talking about what he thinks you're talking about, which is rabbits. You're actually talking about the sound ribbit. And your joke about frogs is a mess. And the whole table's quiet. And then it sort of moves on in that awkward way. And you just wish you hadn't tried the ribbit joke because talking about the nature of men seems better or the nature of women and the profundity of death seems somehow important and you just don't know how to do it. And then you feel like, God, I would want where's my phone. Can I get back on Instagram please already? And then you realize it's Instagram sucks. Let's just be honest. It sucks. And it's turning your brain into mush And you'd like to do this thing. And then you feel a little lazy and discombobulated and a bit embarrassed because you do have a porn habit that seems to be associated with all of this confusion. Why was I talking about ribbits? Why can't I talk about something heavy lightly? And these people seem really fun and cool. And I want to hang out. And why was I talking about ribbits? So we know that. I know this experience. This is what we know as a team of folks out in the field trying to do our work. It's happened to all of us. Ask my buddy Ryan Job. He did a hope toast that lives in infamy. This is our podcast where we can talk about a lot of things that aren't ribbits and rabbits and Instagram and TikTok, but actually they are. Because that's the stuff we're going to talk about. We're going to do it, though, like we're at the table. Beautifully, deeply, but lightly. So why are we talking about ribbits? We aren't. We're not talking about ribbits or rabbits. Today, we take a look at race. Let me get back for a second to the Georgian table, okay? During that night that I just described to you where things go upside down, but then you actually really love it during this crazy night 
of toasting and, and, and thematic sort of the Socratic seminar of the ancient Greeks during this really cool party, which you're all invited to. There's a toast to the land, to land itself, to the land you were born on. To the, it's really to the dust you came from. It's like to the, it's to the dust that's in the sinews of your muscles and your very being. Yeah, see? It's that kind of stuff that happens at the table. Sometimes the toast goes into nationalism. It goes into the big sense of a political family called the country. Sometimes people toast that they're proud to be a Brazilian or they're proud to be an American. The toast can dissipate and goes different directions. People saying nice things about where they come from. I, I got a friend, Joe. Joe's the best. He's a Nigerian guy. And once I remember he toasted to his mother as a type of homeland where he can, he can his, his mom is a type of nation that he can call home. It was real beautiful. It's a good toast. But as I look out the window here in South Carolina, our country is coming apart over this toast. Yeah, we're coming apart we're struggling with this perspective of what a nation is, what identity is, what race is. And I think much and often about my experience overseas, the experience of our field workers, and how much it's informed me about race. And so what I want to do is use this perspective to clarify for myself through these words, much like Jordan Peterson talks about, he doesn't know what he's going to say, he's going. I don't know if I can keep up with that guy, but the point is, is we're going to clarify my own mind, but of course, at the same time, share with you what race is and how it has its tied in knots. It's not a joke. Maybe it should be. Okay. Maybe it should be. So race isn't real. Yeah. Genetically. Yeah, in concrete, material, scientific ways. It doesn't exist. In our history as humans, race hasn't even been the dominant category of division, okay? Human beings have been divided by way more than this. The distinguishing cultural categories in human history are language, lineage, and deity. Language, lineage, and deity. Language and lineage kind of go together. What your the language of your father is yours, so hence you're related, right? The term religion itself, it denotes a binding together, unity. The Latin lig in the word religion is the same lig in the word ligament. In fact, pre-enlightenment people. Now you gotta know this for the rest of this podcast. And if you come and listen, and I hope you do. You're going to see this term a lot. In this podcast, we're going to call people that lived before, say, 1650. These things move around in history. But basically, the Enlightenment starts in the 1600s. Pre-Enlightenment people, we're going to call old worlders. Old world, okay? Old worlders thought of their society as a body. And that body was held together by ligaments. Maybe better put, the body was held together by a common understanding of the good. And they called that common understanding religion. Religion for old worlders is that which holds society together. It's the ligaments. Think of a team, okay? Think of a baseball team or a football team. Think of a team in a cubicle. Let's call them salesmen, okay? What's the lig? What's the cultural, right? What's the cultural ligament that holds that team together for baseball players it's baseball 
the notion of winning a game. What about the sales team? Profits. Now, a lot of businesses would say, I hope my sales team have a ligament, let's say diapers, if they're selling diapers. Diapers should be the leg. It should be the thing that everyone loves and holds up as good because they'll sell more of them if they actually love it. The point is, is what brought them to the thing, what brought them to the table, what brought them to the cubicle, what brought them to the, to the company is diapers or profits. I don't know. It depends. The point is that every culture, small or large, every cult has its common good. In this way, all humans practice religion. All humans at all times and everywhere congregate around a perceived good. It's what culture is. Without the lig, without the common idea of good, the binding part, there can't be culture. But there can be individualism, and that'll turn into quickly hyper-individualism, and that'll turn into a steady dissolution of the body and a, ultimately a debilitating loneliness, something like nihilism. So in the old world, there were basically three ways to know the good. Language, lineage, deity. This is how people knew who they were. This is how they knew who they weren't. But not now, today. Not here in what we're calling the new world. The world is really different now. This new world for the last 300 years has been dominated by a different cult. The cult of Cartesian individualism. If you think you are... That's Rene Descartes, the French philosopher that said, I think, therefore I am, who died about 300 years ago. This is the guy that you are. You've become him. Well, if you grew up in the United States in the last 250 years, you are. His notion that I think, therefore I am, moved the center, the locus of human existence away from old bindings like faith and fatherhood and language and God toward the mind. The way we got organized was according to our mind, at least the thing we think of as our mind. Descartes located the essence of our identity in the individual and his or her ability to think. His work, disseminated as education across Europe for 200 years, it dominates how we Westerners think about ourselves. To think is good. If you think back to school, go for it. Or maybe you're in school right now. Maybe there's some young people listening to the First Things Foundation podcast. What's better than being called a thinker? He's a real thinker. Man, she's got a mind. Yeah. To think is good. To think is the good. This is the enlightenment. I think of the enlightenment as moving the location of heaven from the heart to the head. If you don't like religion or religious terms, and you're like, heaven, really? Okay, just think of heaven as the thing that we're all after, okay? However that manifests itself, right? The enlightenment taught us to use the mind, to find the mind, to find heaven. Yeah, it's this mindset, the mindset of the enlightenment, okay, that finds us fighting in the streets. It's this thing that created so many sideways concepts of humanity, including the concept of race, and it's God is fighting in the streets. See, this type of being, the rationalistic, mind-centered way of being, it created the very roots of our destructive notions of race, the ones we struggle with. Now, here's the tricky part. Here's the tricky part. 
No one wants to talk about this thing that I'm about to talk about, especially in certain, say, shall we say, light-skinned places, okay? The people who pushed this way of thinking, the enlightened way, they're light-skinned people. It's who they were. Light-skinned people pushed this new type of being, but at the time, they weren't white people. Not the kind you and I know. Not the kind that I am right now. I'm a white guy. 350 years ago, most of Europe, it wasn't what I am calling white. They were best described, and they described themselves as followers of the old world ligs. Okay? They found their meaning in, in the family name. The language groups they, they, they spoke and their gods, they were white, but they knew themselves as Cooper or Schmidt or the follower of Luther or a follower of St. Anthony. Their cult looked different. You see, when you study history, you realize their cult, the cult of pre-enlightenment people looks a hell of a lot like the cult of modern day Malians. That's in West Africa. Mayans in Central America, Bedouins in, in, in the Middle East. Yeah, what we think of as white people 500 years ago, they lived and acted and thought just like these people today I'm telling you about. Malians, Mayans, Bedouins, and many, many, many hundreds of millions of people. Pre-enlightenment people in Europe, white people, lived and worked and thought like every pre-enlightenment, everyone, like pre-enlightenment people everywhere. And in that world, skin color and race, yeah. They just didn't matter well, as much. In a future podcast, I'm going to tell you about when I took my wife to Africa. Me white, her black. She grew up uptown in New York City. And we went to Africa together and then spent three weeks in Mali and places where I spoke the language and she did not. She wore the skin color. I spoke the language. It was nuts. There's a good story in that. I just can't share it right now. We'll get to it in the future. So today, modern European societies become what 350 years ago, a very small group of intrepid men, mostly, set out to make enlightened. They set out to make their people think of themselves as enlightened. European people elevated the mind and the intellect, and set it above the heart. Then they set it above the soul. Then they set it above the body, above all aspects of human living. And they called that setting apart good. I mean, don't forget who named this particular historical movement the Enlightenment. Europeans did that. The people subjecting themselves to the new world norms and values named their movement that which gives light. Look, another way to think of it is that Europeans chose themselves as the chosen people of the light God. The cult of Europeans worships the enlightenment. That's how this thing looks in history. It does. And that's okay. Because that's how humans work. We all join the cult. It's in our nature to search for the good, not very much unlike 
A running river moves toward the ocean. Yeah. So, what's a profile of one of these uh, light cult leaders? Right? The Enlightenment cult leaders. Who were these cats from the 17th and 18th centuries? Well, first, they all loved math. Okay? They always talk about God and math as kind of being the same thing. The language of God is math. Descartes himself said, mathematics is a more powerful instrument of knowledge than any other that has ever been given to human agency. Most powerful instrument of knowledge, math. Hume, David Hume, an empiricist, really the empiricist, that means one who believes and loves experience, he argued against ideas being in our hearts. You know how you say, like, that's really in my heart. No, he's like rejecting the innate, things innate in human beings. He believed all human knowledge derives solely from experience. His ideas are the basis for modern scientific thought. If you can smell it, if you can touch it, if you can taste it, if you can hear it, if you can see it, you can measure it, and it's real. If you can't, it's going to get a little iffy. It may not even exist if you can't do these things. The new philosophies got people out of whack, okay? The new Enlightenment cult upended European society. People wrote about this. John Donne, one of the famous poets of the early Enlightenment, he wrote this poem called The Anatomy of the World. It starts... The new philosophy puts all in doubt. The element of fire, that, that's put out. The sun is lost. The earth is lost. And no man's wit can well direct him where to look for it. Right? You can't find these things anymore. Life is upside down. The Enlightenment, its cult leaders... They're going to create, and they plan to create, a mechanistic model, right, for all things that exist. This new cult and their leaders were set on driving heaven to the brain, to the place they called rational. Heaven would be found, right, in the exercise of the mind. So, there were new goalposts. That's not an easy thing to say. Goalposts, goalposts. That's what there were, though. Rationalism and empiricism. You could look at the field as being one side rationalism, the other side empiricism, right? There were new rules, new dogmas, okay? And a lot of new cool things were born out of this new world. I think one of the most important things was transoceanic travel, the 16th and 17th centuries are all about light people in boats. What did the light people do? They used reason, empirical data, and they made their boats go further and faster. And this new cult landed on every shore possible. And they began to assess and quantify and calculate and theorize. They made enlightened sense out of our world, out of every world, north, south, east, and west. Yeah, the story had begun. 
The new world and its project to transform the old had begun and, well, meet the African, meet the Mayan, meet the Aleut. Yeah, these people are all being introduced, right? Their legs are all being challenged. Their cults are all being questioned and ultimately subjected, subjected to the new world leg. But it gets weird, too, because the old world is not only brown and black. The old world can be found in super white places like Russia or the Georgian Republic or Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. Arabians were classified as white in the 1950s by American law. Yeah. What about Asia? Is that old world? Yeah, it's old world. By the time folks started coming to Asia, at least these light people, right? They're meeting the ancient religions of Taoism and Confucianism. Very important concepts around which many Asians organized their culture. See, as the New World people got off their boats, they weren't spreading a race. They were selling a way of thinking. They were imprinting a way of being. They were creating a new cult. And they were white. Yeah. What becomes... See, what didn't matter so much pigmentation, skin color, right? Ethnic phenotypes. Yeah, they become a type of hiccup in history, like a historical hiccup, but it's massively important. You see, in these centuries, the 17th, 18th centuries, we see the first attempts at race science. Yeah, language science, linguistics, and God science, theology. That had always existed. Don't believe people, you know, those guys, they didn't have science. They had science. They didn't have this science. Science always existed, but now for the first time in human history, people are trying to figure out what made races different. But why hadn't this science been around earlier, this new thing? Why do the light people come up with it? Because their lig, their cult demands it. You see, their cult organizes itself around knowing, using the mind to know. All things, they believe, can be properly understood when quantified and studied. And now that includes pigmentation and skull size. We're not going to take the old world legs, the old world cults at face value. We're going to redo this thing. I'm going to restudy it. But see, it's not like the people before hadn't noticed the rainbow of humanity, the many hues of mankind. You know, the old world wasn't, you know, they had eyes. They figured this stuff out. They knew all about black and white, but they didn't organize their humanity that way. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Old worlders were tough on each other. I mean, Take a look at the Romans in the Roman Empire. They loved them some slavery, okay? By some counts, slaves made up 40% of the total Italian population at the time of Christ. That's more than 3 million slaves. The entire empire, the Roman Empire, said to have more than 6 million slaves. Who were these slaves? Check this out. 
Who did the slave-holding white Romans have as slaves? Whiteys from Gaul, pale hombres from Hispania, black people from North Africa, brown people from Syria, ruddy Germanic folks, red and pasty Brits, olive-skinned Greeks. Yeah, these were their slaves. All of them enslaved, none of them liking it. It wasn't like it was cool, slavery, all right. Romans were slave lovers. They practiced slavery with the best of them. But those white people were race deniers. New worlders, post-enlightenment, no, no, no. They were race concept builders. They needed, their cult demanded that they categorize people in a new way. A way all their own, a way that Descartes and Hume and John Locke would be proud of. The mysteries of the world, old and new, had to be subjected to a new paradigm. And so the studies began. Man, are they stupid. Race theory, race studies, just go Google, okay? The cats I'm about to tell you about. It's, here's the thing, it's so stupid, you can't believe it's real, but here's the thing. People thought it was stupid at the time. People thought it was stupid at the time, right? There were people that came over on the boats, light-skinned European people who thought that race was ridiculous, the concept of it foolish, okay? They were using a different leg. They understood everyone to be brothers and sisters. Now, they called it in Christ, brothers and sisters, right, with Muhammad. But believe me, they didn't see this race concept. They thought it was stupid. You know, eugenics only finds its perfect expression in Hitler, but it had been around for 300 years. As soon as these cats started studying race, they created eugenics. Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest thinkers in Western history, humanity exists in its greatest perfection in the white race. The yellow race? They have a smaller amount of talent. The Negroes are lower. And the lowest are the American natives. Come on now. Right? Johann Frederick Blumenbach. He comes up with the taxonomy in his book, Natural Variety of Mankind. This is in 1795, right at the beginning of, American, uh, of the American uh, experiment. He's the guy that you know about because you know that there's, isn't there five races? Yellow, black, brown, red. What's the other one? Yellow, black, brown, red, white. He started that. But it got topped off in the 1920s. A guy named Lothrop Stoddard, a Ku Klux Klansman, who just, he just makes it simple. White, black, yellow, brown, red. Okay? He puts it simply for folks looking for simple answers about race. The head is now leading the heart entirely. The head Right? The rational mind. Math is now superseding linguistics. Science and empiricism has overcome theology. The march toward modernity was a march away from the heart, and it was being led by the light people. And the light people would forever shed their old ways themselves. Europeans... Think about Smith. If you're a Smith, are you a Steve Smith out there? Bill Smith, Jim Smith? You worked with iron. 
are you a Frank? Then you spoke French. If you followed Martin, you were a Lutheran, right? Those are gone now. People don't think like that. It's not important. What's important is how you think about yourself thinking about yourself. So we can't get loose with this race thing. It's become real. At the beginning, I said it's not real. It's become real, like a boogeyman. We keep putting skin on this thing. Chuck D from Public Enemy said, the hater taught hate, now we're gang banging. Right? People taught race, now we're race fighting. But really, at the core of our modern day race problem is not race. It's an inability to see things in the old way with the heart. You see, we got trapped in our minds. We're dominated by data. We're dominated by facts. We're dominated by material reality, materialism. Philip Sherrard, you're going to hear a lot about him if you come tune back in, which I hope you will. This dude is an Englishman, okay? Light skinned dude living post enlightenment he died in the 90s orthodox christian guy old world guy in many ways dipped deeply in the old world but living in the new he wrote a book and just turned my brain upside down because basically what his words did is they informed me about what i'd already learned in my heart they were words that washed over my intuition and now my head and heart were being united through the words in his book and he wrote a lot of books but the book i'm talking about is rape of man and nature and it just goes so far in explaining the terrible dilemma we modern new world people have created for ourselves but we haven't created it just for ourselves it's for the whole world okay at the core of sherard's book though you can see he's teaching this notion that we scientifically inclined, well, he would, he's not so nice on most scientists, that the scientism of modern secular society has defined human beings out of existence. What he says is, is the anthropology of today has basically one thing or one sentence to say about human beings. Uniquely smart, completely soulless, Mammal. What are you? Uniquely smart, completely soulless, mammal. He argues that the new world cult created a culture void of art and the beauty of paradox. And he said this adoption of nihilism, of nothingness, started when the new world man threw out the greatest of all the paradoxes, of all the Fusing irrational truths. That first truth was that God became man so that man could become like God. See, he said that was the inheritance of not only Europe, but the Middle East, whole parts of Africa, right? The, into Russia, pretty much the whole world, at least if not accepting Christianity, could understand this crazy paradox because they all thought similarly in the old world, which is, God was man and man was God. What? God became man so that man could become like, what? 
See, he argues Christ is God-man. This is a pure paradox. You ain't going to figure that out scientifically. No. And if God became man, then we can become like God. Whoop! This stuff is irrational. Can you hear it? It's utterly odd. And it has to be odd for any true believer in the new cult of the Enlightenment. Right? Old world, old world folks, unwilling or unable to abide by the laws of the light people, they have trouble holding on to this crazy paradox. It don't make no sense. And most people shed it. If you can feel this dichotomy, this tension, if you feel like a little torn, if part of the splinter in your mind keeps poking you about isn't life supposed to be simpler? You can kind of begin to feel the sadness and anger of those folks on the street in Black Lives Matter because they're saying something that they're not saying. I went out to one of the marches. I went out with my family. They're saying stuff, but not what they're saying. What they're saying is I can't breathe, right? Right? They want reforms of all types, but if you really listen carefully, it's modern man writ large. None of those folks know about old world ways of thinking with their heart. They're not dipped in the education, right, about the ancient world. But when you look at the ancient world, what you start to realize is, is they are crying out as if ancient and saying, I am more than a rational cog in a law-inspired mechanical machine. I am more than a rational cog in a law-inspired mechanical machine. One of the chants actually up here in Greenville, where I am in South Carolina, was, I am more than my skin color. I kept hearing this, I am more than what I do, right or wrong. I am more than what I do. I am more than what you see in me. I am deeper and more profound than how my mind works. I kept seeing a mass of people marching for something like a return to their humanity. Take out the politics, man, because the agenda is confusing and weak on many levels. People in the streets right now are crying out to be understood as more than a rational cog in a law-inspired mechanical machine. Right? The police are the perfect manifestation of that mechanical machine. Not that the people are bad, but how do they operate? Law and order. Bam! Coming down on you. There's nothing wrong with that because order allows for creativity. But the point is, too much order, too much intellect, too much reason drives people away from their true humanity which is a perfect union of God and man, soul and mind, right? Sherard calls the heart the noose. And I keep thinking how the people on the street in that march, they kept crying out to be apprehended, to be understood, to be understood through the heart. But they also want to be able to understand through the heart. 
but because they're new, like me and you, they keep defaulting to trying to understand through the mind. Whoop! You see, we've all been brought up. It's like someone learns to throw left-handed, and I try to flip him around to the right side. Well, I'm just going to default to the left. Man, is my arm tired. There's this innate understanding. Oh, my God, I got to be understood through my heart. Ah! And it keeps flipping back. And I keep using my mind. And then we fight. What Sherard says is there isn't an organ in us that apprehends properly. And it's called the noose. And that's a Greek term that really translates poorly into soul. It's really not. It's the, it's the, it's the intellect of the soul. It's hard to explain. We're going to try. That thing is the proper mix of both intellect and spirit. It's the thing in you that allows you to see clearly. Pow! That's the thing that I kept seeing on the street. That's the thing I kept imagining people were after, but they didn't know. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. In next week's podcast, we're going to look at this notion of the heart, of the noose. Some of you, a certain demographic is going to say, oh, really, the heart. Isn't that just code for new age nonsense? Isn't the heart just where weak people go to cry about things they can't change? Heart smart. I think like that sometimes. Oh, you want to talk about your emotions? No, 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 no. That's not what this is. Okay. The heart is an essential aspect of our human divine ontology. It is essential to our being. It's essential to apprehending reality, right? It's way more than what modern people have come to call love. No, 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 no. Way more than what we think of as love. It's an incredible organ in us that nobody finds when they dissect you, but it's in there. Next week, we'll take a look at it. But we'll look at it as per somebody's Instagram post about race because somebody's doing it. Race, the protest, and the heart next week on why are we talking about rabbits. Okay. Shenny's Gagimarjos. That means... To you, may you have victory. It comes again from Georgia. It's often said at this table, and we'll say it at the end of this podcast. To you, the victory. That's our show for today. Thanks for coming along. Watar, that's why are we talking about rabbits? Watar is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. Share Watar with friends. Hit us up with solid reviews on iTunes. And everywhere you get your podcast, your love for us helps us go and love others and serve others. So, nakvam dis, hasta luego, kambufo, peace out. See you next week.